Well, that really has been our focus uh, throughout this week that we would behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Well, we've taken a break for a day from the big story, so let me just kind of back up. We put five pieces of the jigsaw puzzle in place. We began with creation in the image of God. You and I were made to image God and rule and subdue humanity by shaping the shapeless and filling the empty, doing the work that God did in us. Then we looked at the tragic flaw, the desire for independence of God and to become like God apart from him in the fall and the five phases of death that we were marked with. And then we looked at the story of Israel, God's a picture really of God continuing to pursue his initial agenda of forming a people for himself and living in intimacy with them. Israel, however, failed in that mission, both of the pursuit of intimacy with God and in the blessing of the nations. And for that, they were in exile. And yet throughout it, we saw God working four new themes of newness. Uh, he promised to give them a new name and by which they will still fulfill their destiny, uh, a new covenant that will internalize the law of God and give them transforming power, a new temple that would be completely different from the old temple, still filled with his glory. And then finally, of course, all of this happening through a new messenger of the covenant who would be both suffering servant and anointed conqueror. And that led us to the extended focus on Jesus, that he did not appear in a historical vacuum, but came as the fulfillment, as the apex of these thousands of years of development to fulfill that which was implicit. And in him, God allowed us to become intimate with him in a whole new level and through him to bless the people around us. We saw in Jesus for the first time a display of a human being fully alive, fully demonstrating the image of God in man and that he was the first of a whole new stream of humanity and through union with him this has become a glorious possibility for us. And then we moved the focus to the bride of Christ, Jesus, the church. Uh, and when history will have reached this conclusion, what awaits us is a magnificent celebration, a banquet. You and I, the bride of Christ, and Jesus, the bridegroom. Now we use the book of Ephesians to help us understand the church, to see the church the way God sees it. A demonstration of his, the greatness of his power, the riches of his grace, and of the manifold wisdom of God. Now, Paul ends after talking about praying because we have an enemy. Paul says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul wants his people to pray for him because he's on mission for God. And he says, so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. So he wants to get information from his missionary work to the people back home. He says, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So this book that talks about um, more than any other book about the church, its radiance, its beauty, its purpose, and how God sees it, and the destiny that we have as the bride of Christ, is a church that is on mission. And that church is in active partnership with those who are at the widest ends of the gap accomplishing that mission. So that's the, the sixth piece of the puzzle today. We're going to be speaking about the mission that God has given to his bride, the church. Even as he is beautifying the church, she is continuing to be on mission with him. Now, I am a product of missions. A Canadian missionary, 89 years old, I just spoke to him yesterday. Uh, he 
came to India. In his home, I heard the gospel for the first time. Even though I was a product of missions, I really knew nothing about global missions. Um, it was not really until that part of my journey where I came to North America, came to Toronto, in fact, and got married and started attending Rexdale Alliance Church, a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Right? Missions, as, as they always say, is their, is their middle name. That's where I began to really get an understanding of, of global missions. And over the first few years of my ministry there, two or three of my close friends from the church went overseas, one to Africa, one to Indonesia, one to Ecuador, one to the Philippines. And now I began to get a picture of missions from the inside. Uh, not often the sanitized version of the stories that we get in the denominational magazines, but life as it really is on the cutting edge of, 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 of world mission. And then slowly in the late 80s, I began to be introduced to the world Christian literature and the world Christian movement as I began to read people like David Bryant and others. I began to learn about the unreached people groups, the hidden peoples of the world who've never heard the gospel and don't even have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And 17,000 of these people groups making up over half the world's population. And then slowly my vision began to form of building a church that would have global impact as uh, part of its ethos and its culture. And my passion became how to mobilize people whom I would call Mr. and Mrs. Pew Sitter to have a key role in the Great Commission. Because so often we make this mistake of thinking, well, those with the call get to go and the rest of us lead a happy, joyful life in suburbia. Well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. So I want this morning to do that for this group of people because it's very much part of this big picture. Why we have been chosen and set apart. Our conversion is set in this larger context of global mission. And by the way, I try to put all of this together into the one book that I wanted to write more than any other. It's called Hijacked by Glory. You can get it. If you go to our church's website or the national office of the CNMA, you can get a copy. And I don't get any money from it. All the purchases, all the purchase money from that goes straight to the Great Commission Fund of the Alliance. But I want to try and do in 45 minutes what I tried to take a book length to do. <laughs> just to whet your appetites. Now, just like Jesus didn't appear in a historical vacuum, but in a history that has been unfolding for millennia. So the mission that Jesus commissioned his disciples, when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's why mission also has to do with Jesus. You will be my witness. It's witness to Jesus that is the heart of the mission. That also didn't appear in a vacuum. So before we go to the book of Acts, which what, which what describes historically the unfolding of the mission, this side of Jesus, we need to see that this too is part of something that has been developing for millennia. So let, let's go all the way back. And the reason why this is so important, my brothers and sisters, is that Patrick Johnstone in his book, uh, The Church is Bigger Than You Think, answers the question, why church, churches have lost their missionary vision? Even the early church lost it very quickly. It was not until William Carey really that the global dimension was recovered. And his answer was the loss or absence of a clear theological framework for world missions. And that's what I want to build for us this morning as part of our big picture review on missions. We want to go back again to Genesis uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. So notice the, the, the progression. I will bless you so you will be a blessing and in you all the families or nations of the earth will be blessed. This Abrahamic covenant, I don't count these things, but somebody said appears 53 times in the Bible. It is the spinal cord of the whole Bible. Abraham and then his people blessed to be a blessing to the nations of the world. And notice it has those two parts. God will bless his people, that is part one, but they will then bless the nations of the world is part two. Both of them together make up the Abrahamic covenant. And the context of this covenant with Abraham is even more important. But if you look at what happens in Genesis 10 and 11, you, you discover the, the rebellion of the tower at Babel, led by a man named Rim, Nimrod, and then the subsequent confusion of languages and the dispersal of the peoples according to their various little clans and subgroups. That was actually described in 10. Uh, 11 actually comes before 10 in terms of how things unfolded. But why would God spend so many pages in Genesis, which is a condensed description of what is probably thousands of years of time, to give us this laborious description of the nations dispersing? It's, it's as, almost as bad as reading the genealogies, you know. Unpronounceable names, unpronounceable geography, according to these various clans. It is to show that when man grasped for greatness, that's what Genesis 11 was all about, we will make a name for ourselves. The nations were dispersed. In Genesis 12, God says, let me do for you what they tried to do for themselves. You don't try to make your name great, I'll make your name great. I will bless you, and then you will be a blessing to the nations of the world. So you see the critical importance of this Abrahamic covenant. Then, we move on to the book of Exodus. Another paradigmatic event, the, dis the deliverance of God's people from uh, slavery in Egypt was really a paradigm of our deliverance from sin because it is referred to over and over again in the, in the New Testament. The, the language of redemption from slavery is used for our redemption from spiritual sin, from the slavery of sin. But it finds its roots all the way back in the book of Exodus. And you know the story now because I walked you through that. Uh, Abraham's descendants become about 70 or so and through uh, Joseph's work in Egypt, they up, arrive in Egypt, begin that work of blessing another nation. Then that other Pharaoh comes up and we were reminded of that yesterday again uh, as Mark spoke to us and uh, God used Moses in that amazing deliverance. Uh, and then while they are up in the mountain, while Moses is up in the mountain, receiving the Ten Commandments. The Israelites are already down in the valley building this golden calf. Which, by the way, that, that, that sin at Horeb is referred to many, many times because it's also a quintessential sin because the spirit of idolatry entered the people at that time. But that's not my main point for this morning. My main point is, if you read in Exodus chapter 32, well, Moses is up on the mountain. Basically, God says to Moses, your people down in the valley have already rebelled against me. He said, let me destroy them. Let me destroy them, and I'm going to start with you and your family, Moses, and do things all over again. You have to be a pastor to understand the power of that, bless that temptation. All this murmuring, grumbling, rebellious people, we'll wipe them all out, and we'll start fresh just with you and your family. You know what Moses said? 
But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Now I want you to listen to the prayer because I'm going to emphasize certain words. O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit forever. Moses doesn't accept any private deals of blessing. You know why? Because if he did, that would only be fulfilling the first half of the Abrahamic covenant, which is, I will bless you. And basically, God is saying to Moses, are you forgetting what you said to Abraham? Are you forgetting the second half of your covenant, God, which was to bless the nations of the world? What do you think the Egyptians are going to think about you if you destroy your people? They're all going to say, this God is just as powerless, no better than any of our God. Is that what you want, God? I mean, how often do we pray like that? We settle so quickly for, Lord, bless me and my family. No, Moses didn't accept that. He said, what will the Egyptians say about you, God? You started this mess. You better finish it. <laughs> you know, you can only pray that way if you're praying God's words back to him. You try praying that way by yourself, you never know which words out of your mouth will be the last words out of your mouth. <laughs> but when you are seized with a passion for God's glory among the nations... Then you can dare to pray, yeah, bless me too, and don't forget. Bless us so we will bless the nation. So I'm not accepting any private deals, God. You have to finish what you started. Let the Egyptians know who you are, so don't destroy your people. A nation's destiny was hanging in the balance, and one man understood this principle. That's why he said, remember Abraham. He took him all the way back to Abraham. He shaped his prayers when his own people were in danger of complete extermination. He rooted his prayer, not on please have mercy. He doesn't appeal to God's mercy once in this. Although that is also true. He appeals to God's zeal for his glory among the nations of the world as a basis for showing mercy to the people. So then we move on to the time of kings. And remember I told you in the, in the time of kings, two of the prophets, Elisha and Elijah, one of them was sent to Naaman, the leper, who was a Syrian whose army had actually conquered Israel and had captured uh, some people. And Naaman ends up, as a result of that healing, becoming a worshiper of the God of heaven. And then the other one was the Syrophoenician woman. Sorry, the widow from Zarephath. Many widows in Israel. But the only story of that widow being blessed in the time of the kings was this woman from Zarephath. And Jesus, if you remember, uses those two stories in Luke's gospel when he begins his public ministry. I'll come back to that in a minute. Then you come to the Psalms, Israel's worship manual. There are over 110 references to the nations of the world in the Psalms. The quintessential one is Psalm 47. Listen to a few verses from here. It opens with verse 1 saying, Clap your hands, all ye people, all ye nations. Whenever you read the word peoples with a plural letter, it isn't because their grammar is wrong. It's a way of translating a particular word in, in Greek or in Hebrew that carries the idea of nations are culturally unique subgroups, people groups. 
Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on the throne. So all of this is, is worshiping God. And then verse 9 ends with says, the princes of the peoples, meaning all the other non-Israelite nations, will gather, and the Hebrew word is kahal, which has exactly the same meaning as the Greek word ecclesia, which means church, the called out people. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. In other words, he said, I am calling out this kahal, this congregation, this church that is made up of the people of Abraham and the kings of the other nations. All of them are joining together in one to worship God. Israel would never be allowed to forget in her worship experience that it was never intended to be just a private experience. So never ever go away from saying, oh, wasn't that a wonderful worship time? You know, these all-night sings and quartets and whatnot used to be famous in the 70s and the 80s. And, and I think they missed the point in one huge area. They allowed us to get completely satisfied when we have had a wonderful worship experience and haven't once thought about the nations of the world that have yet to come in and become part of this gathering. But Israel was never allowed to. There were, you don't go too long in the Psalms before you hear about the nations. And God being the God. What does that say to us today, those of us who lead worship in churches uh, and, and structure a worship service together? That over a regular, regularly we ought to be able to say, no, no, this worship, one day the peoples and the nations of the world are going to gather with us as, and worship this incredible God and Father Jesus Christ that we worship. And then we come to the prophets and we find this unique prophet named Jonah. Now, Jonah is unique in all prophetic literature because in all the other prophets, they speak God's word to the people. But in Jonah, God speaks to the prophet while the people listen. And it's a pretty ugly story. Jonah was commissioned to go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, are you kidding? I'm going in the opposite direction. And he found a ship and went off to Tarshish. Why? Because Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, Assyria was one of the most cruel, cruel empires. It was a universe, it was a world power at that time. And they were unbelievably cruel. What they did was like the ISIS of those days in, in terms of their cruelty. And Jonah said, you want, you want me to go preach to them? No way. I'm out of here. And you know what happened. There was a storm and Jonah said, throw me overboard, it's all my fault. And so they did. Well, God took care of that problem. And inside the belly of this big boy, whatever it was, Jonah prayed. And so he got spit out. And he said, oh, go. God said to him a second time, go to Nineveh. So this time he went. Forty days and judgment is coming. Ah, boy, he was happy to preach that. That's what they deserve, these people, judgment for all that they have done. Well, the unexpected happens and the king repents. And the king issues an edict to everybody. You're going to repent before this God. An entire city repented. Now, I don't know about you, but if any evangelist went to one of the cities of the Middle East today and, and did that, and what happened? What would you expect the next verses of them out to be? Praise the Lord. Let me send the emails back home right away to our intercessors. I can't believe this. Well, you won't believe this either. Because this is what Jonah said. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Oh, yeah. 
a whole nation outside of Israel got revived by your preaching and you're really upset and sad. Why? He was angry too. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I mean, this is incredible. Basically, he's saying, I knew, I knew you're a God who forgives. When people pray, when preachers pray to, uh, preach, people come to Christ. I don't want that. I knew you were that kind of a God. And then he says, now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He was so angry at this that God would dare to be gracious to these people. He hadn't, hadn't a clue about the Abrahamic covenant. He lost it completely. So anyway, then you know the story about God making the plant and then he's very, Jonah's very happy that there's shade and then the plant shrivels up and Jonah's very unhappy that the shade's gone and he's uncomfortable. His idols of nationalism and personal comfort were ruthlessly exposed in this story. And the book ends in a very surprising way. And God says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left hand and probably the most amazing addition and also their cattle? Why does the book end there? Because we don't know how Jonah responded. That's the whole point of this story. The people who were listening to the story of Jonah in Israel, they didn't know it. They were being hooked slowly because they were Jonah. <laughs> They had forgotten their purpose to bless the nations of the world. And the story was an invitation. We don't know how Jonah responded because the issue is the people who are hearing them, that story of Jonah now. How are you going to respond? With people from the Middle East coming in by the hundreds, by the thousands. With Syrian refugees coming in. With Pakistanis moving into your neighborhood. This is a story for such a time as this. So if you look at the Old Testament, from the patriarchs in Genesis, to the Exodus, to the time of the kings, in their worship manual, to the prophets, the emphasis is consistent. God blessed the people to bless the nations of the world. God blessed his people to bless the nations of the world. The global commission was never, never to be absent from our personal, private enjoyment of the blessings of God. But Israel, as we know, failed, typified in Jonah. So how was this Abrahamic covenant going to be fulfilled? How were the nations going to be blessed? And in our story of Israel, we remember, it was through one unique descendant of Abraham, Jesus. And Isaiah chapter 49 talks about Messiah's job description. And now the Lord says, he who formed me, it was, one of, it was the second of the four servant songs uh, that slowly build up to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and the suffering servant. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, this is speaking prophetically about Jesus, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. <laughs> Messiah's job description, he said, was if you only came to bless Israel, that's too small for you. 
I will make you a light of revelation for the Gentiles of the world. By the way, that is how you could tell, we could tell if, you, if Israel understood this, who was a true Messiah and who was not. A true Messiah would always, always focus on the nations of the world as well as his own people, never just for his own people. And so that brings us to Jesus. And some of this I already covered in part four in the story of Jesus, but let me just quickly recap it just to show you how it all hangs together. Jesus' birth, remember the genealogy in Matthew. The genealogy that, that includes, the only genealogy that includes women and three of the four of them are non-Israelites. The Jesus' blood was mixed racial blood. But something I didn't mention in that story, if you look at chapter two, is the story of the Magi from the East. And, and you know, and we celebrate that little story in our Christmas narratives with all little kids dressing up like, like we three kings and, and that's all fine. What you miss in all of that is it is the first recorded incident in the New Testament of worship of Jesus. They opened their treasures to him. Who's worshiping Jesus? Gentiles, not Jews. And this in a book that was targeted of the four Gospels, Matthew was primarily targeted in the Jewish mind. That's why there are so many Old Testament references in Matthew's Gospel compared to Mark and Luke and John. And so right at the very beginning, he's reminding them, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, a genealogy that includes uh, women, that includes immoral women, that includes the Gentile women, and then the very next chapter, the first group of people worshiping Jesus are Gentiles. So right at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, this ministry of Jesus is placed in the context of this thread that is woven right throughout the Bible, which is the mission to the nations of the world. And then, of course, when Jesus begins his ministry, he began where? In Galilee. I told you, Galilee was Galilee of the Gentiles, Gentile territory. More than that, you remember after he rose from the dead and he told his disciples, where, where did he tell them he's going to meet them? Go to Galilee and I will meet you. Why? Because he wanted them to start where he started. He wanted them to know that their mission included Galilee of the Gentiles. And would start where he would start. And then when he began his first sermon in Nazareth, he picked up the scroll. Remember Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. And he goes on. And then he says, and the in the year of the favor of the Lord, which I told you was the announcement of Jubilee. But you know, Isaiah 61 has a second half to that. To announce, the, proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God upon our enemies. Jesus left that out. Because there was no vengeance for the enemies. It was a time of blessing for the enemies and for the nations. And that's when he told the two stories from Elisha and Elijah about them being sent to Naaman and to the widow of Zarephath. At that moment, the people, who, until that moment, the people were saying, what a beautiful teaching. What a beautiful man. As soon as he told those two stories, they wanted to kill him. That's how deeply entrenched they were against the Gentiles. It is for us and not for anybody else. And Jesus took them head on from the announcement of his ministry. And then came the cleansing of the temple. I just mentioned it briefly, but let me amplify. Why did Jesus really cleanse the temple? Yeah, there were money changers there. there were, you know, but part of that setup was actually authorized by God himself. Because in Deuteronomy, he said, if you, leave very, if you live very far from the temple, you can't lug your animals that far. So sell the animals, take money, take your money there, and buy animals for sacrifice. That was all okay. But what had happened was this had been set up into a, a, an, an uh, opportunity to fleece the poor people. So he was, Jesus was obviously angry about that. He overturned the table of the money chain, but that's not what he said. What he said was, this is my father's house. It shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, and you have made it into a den of thieves. You see, any Gentile 
that was actually attracted to the God of Israel the way he was supposed to be attracted. Remember in Deuteronomy, he said, if the nations see you obeying this law, they will say how wise you must be, what a great God you must have. If some Gentiles were attracted, they were called God-fearers, and they were actually allowed to abandon their idol worship, and they could come into the outer courts of the temple. That's as far as they could go. The outer court was the court of the Gentiles. The Gentile couldn't get past that. Israel's worship was segmented. Out par, out of that was the court of the men, then the court of the, of the women, then the court of the men, then the court of the priests, and then finally the inner holy of holies where only the high priest could go. And so the Gentiles were even physically, metaphorically cut off from the God of Israel. But they could come into the outer court. And it was the outer court where a poor Gentile could come seeking after Yahweh that these people had turned into a marketplace. And Jesus was furious. See, every single one of these things shows us that Israel missed the point completely. The you know, this is, this is the condition of most of our churches today. The Great Commission is not on our agenda at all. The nations are not part of our thinking at all. It's all, as, it's me and myself, and as soon as we begin to radiate outward, the interest level starts dropping off, and nobody cares about the nations by and large. Oh yeah, there are a few missionaries. Once a year, we'll have a missions conference, if our denomination allows it, and then we'll squeeze them in to give a five-minute report when they've spent four years breaking their hearts in some of the most difficult places of the world. I'm, I'm not overstating the case, folks, by and large except for a few brilliant exceptions. This is largely the mindset. That's why this, was, this is so needed for us to hear. <coughs> and then have you ever wondered why Jesus had, there were two feeding miracles? You know, in Matthew 14, he fed 5,000 people and there were five loaves and, uh, from five loaves and two fish. And then in Matthew 15, 4,000 people, yeah, we get it, Jesus, you've done it once already. Do we need to hear the same story again? I mean, there's so many more things Matthew could have added. Why are you wasting all this space in telling us another story? Oh, no, there's nothing wasted in the scriptures at all. Because you know what happens in between these two stories? There are two other stories. First of all, the Pharisees are rebuked for their focus on outward cleanliness. And then the Syrophoenician, the Canaanite woman comes and says, can you help me? And Jesus said, why should I take our bread and feed it to you, Gentile dogs? And to which she says, well, a dog even eats from his master's table. And Jesus said, I've, I've not seen such faith in Israel. Because you see, the Pharisees, with their focus on outward cleanliness, would have rejected this woman. So really, those two feed. Then when you look at it, you will discover that Matthew 15 is actually feeding Gentiles. At least he's in the Decapolis. And it ends by saying that people praise the God of Israel. The first feeding miracle was Jewish. The second feeding miracle was Gentiles. And sandwiched between it are two stories of Jews who again got it wrong. You, Matthew never lets us forget this emphasis on the outward focus of the gospel to the nations of the world. So now do you see Jesus' commission in the context of this whole story? No wonder he says, well, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, of course, in Judea, yes, in Samaria, which they hated because they were a bunch of half-priests. Remember when Jesus was walking through Samaria, his disciples said, hey, let's call down fire from heaven and burn these people up. That was their orientation, even his disciples. And then all the way to the ends of the earth. So that's, that's the, the master story has missions at its center. Now let me in the last few minutes unpack for you the book of Acts. Because now we move ahead and what is Acts all about? Well at one level we know Acts is all primarily the story of the Apostle Paul and the Gentile mission. That's, that's what it is primarily. It started in Jerusalem and then God 
spread it out. But to step back and give a, get a 30,000 foot view of the book of Acts, there are three principles I think that are very important because for you and me, as we get involved in the Great Commission, these are the same principles that we need to keep in mind. First of all, you'll see God's sovereignty everywhere throughout that book. Read through the book of Acts and you will see how many things God is sovereign over. He's sovereign over leadership elections in chapter one. He's sovereign over timing when the Holy Spirit would come upon and the mission would be started. He just told them to wait. He didn't tell them how long. So he was sovereign over timing. He's sovereign over the crucifixion of Jesus because it says they handed him over according to his determinate counsel and foreknowledge. They only did what God had foreordained would happen. So in the suffering and the passion and the crucifixion of Jesus, it was all according to and strictly within the limits of God's sovereign ordination. And then he harnesses persecution. When Stephen is killed and, and, the, and Saul starts this miserable, terrible persecution of the church, the church is scattered. Guess where they were scattered? They were all congealed in, in, in Jerusalem at that time. And because of the persecution, it says in Acts chapter 8, they went where? Judea, Samaria. Where did Jesus tell them to go? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So he even harnessed persecution to launch the church out on its outward mission. He, he's sovereign over the conversion and, and the raising up of incredible, the Apostle Paul. Nobody was involved in the conversion of the Apostle Paul. There was a direct confrontation with the sovereign Lord and this ruthless persecutor of the church became the greatest pro, uh, protagonist of the gospel. He was sovereign over martyrdom. Stephen was the first martyr, not the apostles. Peter, James, and John were all a, a, the, part of his inner circle. James was arrested and beheaded. Peter was put into jail and he escaped. God is sovereign over who dies and who doesn't die. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, chapter 10, it says, some people by faith escaped the edge of the sword. Other people by faith were put to death by the sword. Same sword, same faith, same people. Some escaped, some died. God is sovereign over these matters. He's, he's sovereign over answers to prayer. When James was beheaded and imprisoned, don't you think the church prayed? I think the church prayed, but there was no answer. Peter was imprisoned, the church prayed, and the prison door swung open, and Peter was released. And what was Peter released to? Because he had some major work to do after that? No. Right after Peter was released in Acts chapter 12, it says he went somewhere else. And, and Peter disappears after that from the book of Acts. Nobody knows. He went, where did the somewhere else he go? What did God save him for? We don't know. Well, he wrote First Peter and Second Peter. We know that. See, God is completely sovereign over which prayers are answered and which prayers are not answered. He's sovereign over open doors and closed doors. You will find in some part the Apostle Paul saying, we, want to, we wanted to preach the gospel in Mycenae, but were prevented by the Holy Spirit from preaching. How do you get that, folks? They were prevented by the Holy Spirit, not by enemies. They were prevented by the Holy. The Holy Spirit prevents people from preaching the gospel. Do you get that? I don't know. But eventually he got them to Troas, where they heard the Macedonian call and the gospel went to Europe. All those no's were for an eventual yes that was even more greater, even more strategic. So God is sovereign over open doors and closed doors. And the last two chapters in Acts, he's sovereign over wind and weather. Gentle, gentle breezes suddenly become massive northeasterners, you know. And Paul, who was supposed to go this way, ended up that way, you know. So God is absolutely sovereign. And if God is sovereign, the, the single most dominant response is prayer. The reason why prayer makes sense is because God is sovereign. What's the point praying to a God who isn't sovereign? He can't do anything about your sub-issue anyway. But if God is sovereign, there's nothing that he can't do something about. 
and prayer is sprinkled throughout the book of Acts. In fact, if you read the letters of the Apostle Paul who wrote during the time of Acts, he ties the success of every dimension of the Great Commission from Jerusalem to the uttermost corners of the earth to the consistent prayers of God's people. The second thing we find is teamwork. Nothing, there's almost nothing that is done by one person. Lone rangers are unknown in God's economy. First it is what? Peter and John, Peter and John, Peter and John. Then it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Then when Paul and Barnabas have a breakout, God said, okay, I'll make two teams out of you. Barnabas takes John Mark and Paul takes Silas and then Luke and Timothy. And then Epaphras and Epaphrodite and all these people, even in jail. Then there's Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife team, tent makers who help him. And then when he's in jail, he has got Aristarchus and Titus and Tychicus and Epaphras and Epaphroditus and Clement. He was limited, but they weren't. Not, almost nothing happened without teams. And the central issue here, the central issue here was limelight and shadow issues. In the first few chapters of the book of Acts is Peter and John. Peter and John, who does most of the speaking? Peter. Now John. He would think John was one of the exclusive apostles. Peter got all the limelight. When was Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, who got all the limelight? Paul, not Barnabas. But you don't see Barnabas getting all upset over that. This is one of the biggest problems today in, in, in world missions, which has to do with teamwork issues. From a local church here all the way to the uttermost corners of the earth. In fact, many years ago, they did a survey of the major, single major obstacles on the mission field, and they discovered the number one problem was the inability of international workers to get along with others. Not because they're any worse than us. If they did surveys like that at home, it'd be the same thing. We'd find ourselves doing the same thing too. But God doesn't change his plans. He still works through teams. And so humility, the development of humility is an absolutely crucial task, whether it's local or that to accomplish the Great Commission, pride is the single biggest obstacle which leads to disunity and humility which promotes unity is the single most important character quality. And then thirdly, we find the crucial importance of lay people. Remember, we already learned this from the life of David. Remember, the person we know most about in the Bible, his exterior work and his interior life is David, a lay person. So in this work of the Great Commission, yes, those who are sent out to the uttermost corners of the world are crucial because without them preaching to these difficult places, no one will hear. But the entire missionary program in the first century would have ground to a complete halt without lay people. And there were three levels of lay people. There were the hands-on people like Aquila and Priscilla who were tent makers who went with Paul everywhere. Then there were local church leaders who got so well-trained in a place like Antioch that after a year, they sent Paul and Barnabas. They sent their best. You go do the preaching. But, but the key, the key that God impressed on my heart was a vast army of unnamed believers in all kinds of places who opened their homes to welcome the Apostle Paul. And then when Paul went, they built heart-to-heart -heart relationships with them and they stayed in sustained contact with them so that they could pray intelligently. And so lay people who open their homes when international workers are at home to build heart-to-heart -heart relationships with them and then stay in contact with them when they are away so that they can pray intelligently with them and for them are a key strategic army as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. And so how does the book of Acts ends? Paul lived, he was under house as Paul lived there two whole years and welcomed all who came to him 
proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The last two words in the Greek language are bold and without hindrance. So Acts 28 ends with a man arrested, supposedly limited, but the gospel is going out unhindered. What a beautiful way to introduce Acts 29, which is all about you and me. So from that day on, we've been living in Acts 29. So let me just quickly finish with the so what, and with that we're done. We have, to, we have to rethink conversion. That's the most important thing. We think of conversion as, okay, I'm going to heaven. I prayed the sinner's prayer. People who never darkened the doors of the church, are, we hear, hear about them at their funeral. Oh, 37 years ago, he or she prayed at the Billy Graham crusade. Now, that's only part one. Part one of our conversion is from the world to Christ when we first came to him. Part two of our conversion we talked about in unit five, from the self to the church. When you realize it's no longer just about me, God didn't just save me, he immediately baptized me into a body of believers and we talked about the church. And then comes part three, is from the church back into the world when we understand the centrality of the Great Commission. So many of us are parked in number one, some of us get to number two and very, very few get to number three. But we need to rethink conversion com completely to say, I need to be thoroughly converted. We need to be born again, again, and we need to be born again, again, and again. First one is being born again. The second one is being born again, again. And the third one is being born again, again, again. From me to the, from the world to the church, from self to the church, um, from, from the world to Christ, from self to the church, and from the church back into the world. And Paul puts it this way. He said, I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. See, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. You see, Paul doesn't see his conversion as some choice that he made to follow Jesus. He sees his conversion as Jesus taking a hold of him for his purposes. And you say, well, isn't that just semantics? No, it's, it's crucially important. Because you see, so long as we think that our conversion was some choice that I made to follow Jesus, Jesus will remain one among many other things we've chosen. My career, my hobbies, my wife, my spouse, my car, whatever. And so he gets his little portion on Sunday morning and maybe at a, at a small group on a Wednesday night. But if conversion is not me choosing Jesus, but Jesus choosing me, then the reason he chose me becomes the overarching purpose and every other choice fits into it. That determines what kind of work I do, it determines how I treat people, it determines how I spend my money, it determines who I marry, it determines how I raise my children, it determines how I treat people, it determines how I spend my time. Every other choice gets subsumed under this massive choice Jesus chose me. That's why it is so important that we change our view of conversion, not from some choice I made so that Jesus remains a compartment in my life, but that he chose me so that every other choice that I make fits into this great commission. Do you get that? That's why he ends by saying, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. By the way, he adds one more sentence that is beautiful. And if any of you think otherwise, God will show you, <laughs> which takes a burden off me. <laughs> if you don't agree with me, okay, God will show you. He's pl planted something in me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for laying things out so clearly in your word. And we confess that we are so often no better than Jonah. We're angry and upset at these people. We speak of them in a derogatory fashion. We're not really interested in grace being shown to them. 
Forgive us that our Christianity has become so quickly privatized, Father. So long as me and my family are doing okay. So deliver us from this I'm all right, Jack mentality, Father. Slowly move us outward from self to the church that we might love the church because she's your bride and because you see her as a demonstration of the incomparable greatness of your power, the riches of your grace and of your manifold wisdom. And then God, I pray that we will understand progressively that we've been blessed in order to be a blessing. Here, to our neighbors and to the uttermost corners of the world. Father, I pray therefore that according to your promise, that you will continue to teach us. I trust that seeds have been sown today that will continue to be amplified and that every single one of us here will play our part in the global drama of redemption for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.